0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir hey, hater Today is a somewhat a special episode because we are in episode 40. How about that? My name is Mark and
1: I'm together with my co-friend and colleague. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's still me. I-, I was 70 last week Mark and I'm still alive and kicking and Hopefully, we'll get to 70 episodes.
0: Yeah, when we say 70 is the new 40. So, yeah, I think we are right on the biscuit, right on the money. Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: How's your week been? Yeah, pretty good. Um, Yeah, um, busy doing lots of stuff, writing. um, Yeah, very good. Looking forward to this one because this area that we're going to touch on today is a biggie. And it's going to be something that will pervade. Education massively in the coming years, right? Okay, and what Dennis is referring to uh, is
0: today's episode. We are going to dive a little bit deeper uh, into the cognitive sciences because we did make some reference to it in our previous episodes. Uh, but today's we are going to try and uh, you know go a little bit deeper. Uh, yeah, and so I thought we could start with uh, the fact that there is increasing recognition. Uh, that research on the mind and the brain and how it works is actually becoming more and more important uh, in educational planning, curriculum and teaching. Uh, And Hart, uh, I think, came up with a very interesting quote and I'm going to read it uh, and then I'll get you to jump in here and share your perspective. So Hart says, Designing educational experiences without knowledge about how human brains learn naturally and most efficiently can be compared to designing a glove without any knowledge of the human hand. So then what's your perspective on
1: this? Well, I mean, that's such a powerful quote. It's been all yep. around for a while, but it really kicks in now. If we think about it, that yeah, if you take that metaphor, mm. um, the the a glove, imagine, imagine producing a glove. And you've got no idea what the and is, the chance of you getting four fingers, a thumb, uh, which is slightly different with that kind of design would be would be like winning the lottery, wouldn't it, to get that by chance. And yet, in many ways, teaching has kind of been doing that. I mean, um, if we go back, we did a few um podcasts ago um, an appraisal of Jeff Petty uh, his work on evidence-based teaching and you know Jeff talks about education being fashion and fad yeah do you remember that yeah yeah you know, in a sense he's kind of mirroring that because you know, if you look at um, if you look at the history of education over the last just four decades for example or even five I'm older than you it seems to it seems to be a creature of fashion that it goes from, well, we've got to have um, kind of very traditional students sitting quietly, teachers talking, skill and drill, and then suddenly seem to be new educational psychologists or theorists or politicians or combinations coming in and say, oh, no, that's not good, that's not right, that's not working. And then you yep. get a movement to what's called progressive education. And we had a period, I don't know if you remember it, oh, discovery learning, just let students go out and discover for themselves. And you know, and then you add Dr. Spock, not the guy <laughs> sky trek uh, sky what was it called star trek star um, trek yeah yeah um not the guy with the ears he knew more about education than this character but this character was a, a significant person in the field of education and was advocating these methods and and then 15 years later something like that he was uh, it was claimed that he he actually Sort of said, blame me for all the hooligans, <laughs> and then we get a movement. Uh, we get the black papers or something like that, saying, "Oh, these methods don't work," and we go back to basics again. We've got to start reading, writing, rhythmic, that kind of thing. The three hours, right? And yeah. then uh, all of a sudden, that uh, there's a, be something th- something new comes up. We, we had constructivism, and constructivism is still kicking around as a dominant mode. But if you unpack constructivism, um, I think yeah we mentioned before I might have yep. mentioned it's that it's not a theory of learning it's it's a kind of it's a it's a paradigm where we we know that ultimately there is a subjective reality and everybody has their own subjective reality, and that means that learners have got to learn in their own ways they've got to make sense of it well, of course they have but what well, from a teaching point of view, where's where's the evidence base uh, in medicine? It's got biology, hasn't it? It's got chemistry. It's got physics. It's it's got a big knowledge base. So what I think um, is, is emerging finally is that we're looking at. Well, if we're going to design learning experiences, which means learning environments, teaching methods, activities. And now, particularly as we've got technology as well, which we did um touch on last week and we will revisit those areas we've got so much knowledge about the brain, the mind, the use of technology that we're able now to start really designing um lessons, courses, etc. Anything yeah. to do with an educational event from a much more evidence-based. So in other words, if we go back to the <laughs> arts um, um making glove analogy, we should be able to make an half-decent glove uh, in terms of teaching. Now, obviously, the colour of the glove and the material is, is you know, it could be different for different people. They, oh, I want a leather glove, or I want a woolen glove, or I want a yellow one or a green one. So if we translate that back to teaching, we can still have our own individual sort of teaching styles. Yeah, But underpinning that, there will be a set of heuristics Good understandings about learning and teaching, and uh, there be an underpinning syntax of good teaching um, that will be universal because it connects with the way the brain and mind work. So that's my overall thinking.
0: So, so maybe then I'll put you in a spot. So, if there is uh, okay, so maybe here's the the the, the challenge. Is there a set of agreed heuristics that you talk about? Uh, Is it agreed? And if it's universally agreed, why are not more teachers or educators adopting them? Why are we still going around in circles and trying to invent things that are maybe already there? Oh,
1: you... uh
0: (laughs) Mark, you've opened up a Pandora's box, here. Yeah, trying to make it a bit more exciting since yeah. it's our 40th episode. Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> right. Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, use an analogy, and I'm not taking any metaphysical stance on this, mm. right? Okay, mm. but just to use an analogy, um, billions of people um, believe in some kind of a god, right? Whether it's a Christ- uh, judo Christian god or or a Islamic god or Hindu gods, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people do that, right. Equally, there are people that... um uh, They're called atheists, aren't they? Who believe there is no God. that is just a massive kind of evolutionary kind of material event that's taken trillions of years or billions of years. And, you know, we just happen to be here, right? So there's people who believe that, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's people who just don't... You know, that, that, that position is, well, I just don't know. I'm not on one side of the fence to another, correct? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense, right? Now, if there's yep. all different religions, right, with different gods and different um, sets of rules, right, then is it? it's unlikely that they can all be right, right? So if one correct. is right, so if, 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 you know, the Islamic perspective or the Christian perspective or the Jewish perspective, if one of those is right, all the others have to be wrong to some extent. Is that correct? Yep. Yep, okay. agreed. And uh, if there's no God, then they're all wrong. And if Correct. there is a God, the atheists, uh, you know, could well be burning in some kind of inferno. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically, right? That's possible. Yep. So yep. millions of people, billions of people, uh, are believing different things about the nature of the world and our position in the universe, right? So okay. it's still the same in teaching that there's still a lot of people there who uh, are just not. Buying into the evidence. I mean, if you take let's go back to the the argument about religion. I'm not going to take any sides, but there's a lot of people, who millions of people, uh who believe in you know creationist view that five, six, seven thousand years ago man was created. You know, in terms of the biblical narrative, right? And yep. then you've got the evolutionary biologists and psychologists who say, look, you know, we we were kicking around like four or five million years ago. Now, at the end of the day. Uh, you believe the evidence or what you've learned prior in terms of how you frame that. So education is still, in many ways, in institutions, in people's minds, maybe in different countries, um, still in what I would refer to as an educational Jurassic Park. I don't okay. think. Uh, I think now um, it was it was acceptable in medicine maybe 200 years ago to say right. Well, let's put leeches on people. That's kind of. Um, <laughs> Um, but let, let, let's, let's, bang, uh, let's bang some drums and make a noise and eat something and sacrifice something and you know that that's going to kind of make people better or change the weather or whatever well the evidence really don't support that like we used to think years back you know 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that when there was a plague or a pestilence, it was with angered God in some way, right? Now, well, maybe we have it, you know, in some indirect but I, I tend to believe more in the germ theory that part of species, there are things like viruses, COVID being one. Is COVID. You know, some god or some metaphysical being's punishment for something we've done well is probably unlikely. It's not impossible, but I'll tend to believe it's just these things like viruses are a part of um, existence. And unfortunately, if you look at National Geographic, it's hard to avoid a conclusion that kind of species are based on hierarchies and predation. Um, so um, this is the point, isn't it, that it's a belief system to some extent. What okay. we're trying to do, I think, and you know, in the sense Jeff's, Jeff's work was to say, hold on a minute, um, there's all these different views about teaching, and um, but there seems to be emerging um, better research, better evidence. We don't believe the world's flat anymore, do we? I don't think. and um, Or that the the, uh, the sun goes round the earth. Um, I don't think we believe that anymore. Uh, I mean, I even think like even now with global warming and the environment, there's still people who say, oh, no, no, you know, we're not. It's all just cyclical, uh, the global warming and the environment. But I think there's more evidence to suggest that man's and woman, right, I don't want to, um, let's not blame the men for everything. Uh, The the, the degradation that's occurring in the world, some of the changes must be the result of pollutants. It just seems the evidence is too strong, the face validity is too strong. So what we're saying now, I think, in cognitive science, is that, look, um, this is how the brain works, this is how the mind works. And certain types of learning experiences and the way learning is designed and delivered and managed, etc., help um, the learning process better than others. So that's, that's that's my best analogy for. Unfortunately, not everybody's coming on the bandwagon. Remember when we were in Singapore, um, there were still quite a lot of teachers talking about constructivism and various other kind of theories I'm not saying that the constructivism isn't, isn't a useful lens in terms of looking at the learning process but it, it's not a I wouldn't call it a scientific theory of learning that can be used for the design of um, teaching and learning environments and experiences whereas now we are talking about look we have knowledge that Helps us to plan our curriculum, structure our curriculum, do assessment, and manage learning, and use technology in ways that helps the brain to learn better.
0: It's a bit like right. a
1: glove should keep us warm. It might not keep all the frostbite
0: out. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I think so. So let's 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 uh, evolve this a little bit more. So uh, I think what we are saying is we want to move away from. Uh, I would say, like, and I'll use the words that you used just now, we want to move away from discovery learning and we want people to really think about moving teaching and learning to a more evidence-based approach as far as possible. Uh, and there are such heuristics already available. Now, before we go there, uh, I think Kilben and Millman uh, argued that teachers should be educational designers uh, and I'll read this out and then after that we'll have a conversation on this. Yeah. So they define this in these terms. Okay. So this is interesting for me and, I, uh, and, and, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but I'm going to read the quote. So, an educational designer is a teacher who approaches instructional planning with purpose, uses knowledge of specialized systematic processes to identify and frame instructional challenges related to learners and content, competently address these challenges through the skillful application of a broad repertoire of instructional models, strategies, and technologies. Educational designers approach the work of teaching with a new mindset. That's interesting, so I need you to elaborate this more. What is this new mindset? A broadened skill set and a high-quality tool set all of which assist them in developing instruction that responds to their learners' needs. Now, the new mindset enables teachers to approach their work as empowered problem solvers who are aware of their ability to direct important dimensions of practice. The expanded skill set allows them mastery over systematic approaches to instructional planning and assessment processes. Now, the high-quality tool set consists of a collection of models, strategies, and technologies for for teaching that can make learning more efficient, effective, and engaging. So, lots to unpack there, but let's start with uh, the the part about uh, a new mindset. What exactly does that mean when you talk about a new mindset? If we are saying that there's already a set of heuristics,
1: how does that gel then? Well a mindset is a way of looking at something, isn't it? I mean if yep. you if you if we we did do I think many many episodes ago um a podcast on what's called a growth mindset and that yep. was Carol Dweck and that's become very much mainstream now and it's essentially to do with the way you look at intelligence, right? And yep uh, Carol um makes a comparison between two mindsets. We won't go into detail, but it it, may, it, it establishes an anchor point. And um, what she says is that you can have a mindset where intelligence is fixed. In other words, you're dealt an hand of cards and that's it. Um, and it don't really matter too much what you do with the hand, unless you're very lucky, that um, it doesn't develop. And the other view is that um, intelligence is more of a flexible entity. In other words, if you work hard, you've got good teaching, and you, you understand the learning process, how the brain works, you can actually grow your intelligence. So now, in terms of students, if a student thinks, well, I'm not very good at maths, I'm not very bright, they don't make the effort, and sure enough, they don't get good results, they don't achieve mastery, and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if you've got students, if you can get them to adopt, take on a growth mindset, believe that this is the reality, and you can get them to do their own work, and if they're doing their own work and they don't understand something they've been taught to be more agentic and the following day chair you know using the Singaporean as opposed to sir and um keep asking for feedback and then they start to build their knowledge and they um, get better understandings and competence and they start doing better exams and they think, ah, this works. So they they adopt that approach. So that's the mindset. Right. Now, if we go back to teaching, if we just think, oh, well, um, teaching is simply about uh, me getting the information from a book, you know, making a copy, copies of chapters and paragraphs, and reading it out and giving it to students, and say, read this. Um, that somehow, um, that's that's it. That's that's teaching. It's about oh, I've got fifty slides to show, and I'm going to show them and read them out. And that's somehow going to go into the student heads. Well, we know the brain don't work that way. I mean, one of the, the new things, and I think we did a session on it, is one aspect of this new science of learning. And it's, it's part of it, but not all of it, is cognitive load theory. And that basically is, is understanding human memory and recognising that the brain has to process information in working memory, uh, makes sense of it. For it to go into long-term memory and connect with prior knowledge well if you try to put too much in at once it's like putting a pint in a half pint glass it all spills it doesn't work yep. so um it, the new mindset is a recognition of hold on a minute how, how, how does the brain and the mind work in a situation where it's been subjected to a learning experience so we've got to understand brains now working on the assumption that students uh, students are still human and they've got brains even though sometimes we think you know they're, they're behaving in a brainless way what they're doing is behaving in a way that represents their level of maturity and their level of experiences and you know you can be an expert at something and it seems so easy to you but for the kid in the classroom and you say to him you know, what what's the area of a triangle it's like you know, for some kids, it might be well, what's a triangle? You know, and then other kids will say, well, I know what a triangle is, but um, what does area mean? And then to another kid, what the area means the 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 you know what's in the middle of the triangle, and it's there's some equation somewhere. It's pi, pi r squared. I'm not quite sure what pi is, and then you've got another kid who just knows that, and it's dead easy. So you know, you've got that's the 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 kind of thing is that the new mindset is to understand as a teacher, you're not just there. To impart knowledge you're there to engage human beings in ways that they are using their brain they're using thinking processes making them aware of how we think so this is the catch that teachers today have got to be not psychologists in the in the absolute sense but they've got to know more about how the brain and the mind works and design, um, Kilbane and Millman are right. They've got to be instructional designers based on the knowledge of how the brain and the mind works. They've got to then say, well, okay, what have I got here? Well, there's things called teaching methods, teaching strategies, right? Um, And there's technology tools. They've got all, and there's the internet now to access so many different resources. How do you design your lessons now so that you are pulling together those resources, those tools, and customising it—and this is the skill, isn't it? Customising it to the student profile. And I'll give you one more analogy, just to throw this in. Yeah. I I I, I tried to do trout fishing a number of years ago, and I thought it's fairly easy, isn't it? You got a rod, and you got you put a fly on the end of it, and you flick it in a lake, right? And you yep. catch trout. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? Well, in two years, I caught two small trout, but there were people who caught dozens and dozens and dozens of trouts now the question is i had the rod but i wasn't terribly good at using it i had a fly on the end but i didn't know things like well different species of trout go for different types of fly at different depths in the water at different times of the year and uh, quite simply i was pretty poor at designing a fly fishing uh, strategy and as a result i didn't catch many flies so if we apply that to <laughs> teaching increasingly teachers now who have what I wrote in a couple of books called Pedagogic Literacy, really understand how the mind and the brain work. And obviously we've still got a lot to learn, but we have learned more about the brain in the last 30 years than the rest of human history. And we are now beginning to understand a lot of, if you like, what's called cognitive scientific principles that we've mentioned before, but this is something I think we need to keep going back to because this concept of cognitive scientific principles uh, in relation to the research that we we've touched on before by Ati. in fact we've gone into it in some detail that some teaching methods seem to work better so to be able to use the knowledge of the brain what teaching methods work better using technology tools and blending this together is going to be the new mindset and the big challenge for teachers okay okay got it sounds good
0: understand so then what then are we talking about in terms of skill set? So they say, Kilban and Milband, uh point out as skill sets is essentially uh, talking about instructional models, strategies and technologies uh, because they actually help them mastery over systematic approaches to instructional planning and assessment processes. So can you elaborate a little bit? uh, And I think this will go back probably to uh, the core principles of learning and also the fact that there are certain uh, strategies uh, that are actually uh, fall under higher effect sizes. Uh,
1: Fair enough? Yeah, I mean, to use an analogy, uh, um, Martin, that we understand, Mm. right, kind of if we take football... um, it's not difficult to understand the skill sets of passing a ball, heading a ball, dribbling a ball, volleying a ball. It's doing it well, isn't it? So now the the we we need to be able to use different instructional methods and those methods that seem to work better, but we've got to use them much more skillfully. In other words, let me give an example. You know, we can begin a lesson and you can say to students, today we're gonna look at geography and start then to uh, read some quotes out or dictate some notes. So you're starting a lesson Instead of saying, look, in starting the lesson, there's a certain kind of, there's a number of things we can do here. And the first thing is to have something that captures the student's interest about the topic. And that could be a quick story. It could be a graphic. It could be an headline. And then to be able to say to the students, well, what do you know about this? To get some engagement, activate some prior knowledge. And then to give them a structure. We, we use the term and we know there's something called an advanced organiser. To say to the students, well, in this lesson, this is what you're going to learn. And this is what it looks like. And we're going to start off by this. I want to find out what you know. Then we're going to look at this video and we're going to think about it. We're going to analyze it. It becomes a much more kind of precise and impactful beginning as opposed to, oh, we're going to have a look at, um, you know, sort of today and then start to, you know, read something out or dictate some notes. So it's a skill for use of, methods at work and be able to customise those to the learning outcomes and the student group. It goes back to the fly fishing, the right fly with the right casting technique at the right depth for the right trout in the right location. Um, and that's what we're really talking about, the skillful application of repertoire of instructional mo- models. So, yeah, so essentially, yeah, so essentially,
0: <laughs> We are Okay, so I just want to to set the the context for this. So essentially what we are saying is there are certain methods which are considered highly effective. Teachers need to know this, but it doesn't mean they do not have the right to put their own style or spin on it. So uh, if I can give you an example, uh, there could be, so when you talk about, we know that direct teaching is actually one of the high effects Sizes five one of the high effect size methods. Uh, Much to my surprise, actually, because here I was, uh, as I was, uh, you know, uh, growing in my career, everybody was telling me, "Oh, active learning, student-centered learning is very important and uh, not good to do direct teaching." Uh, And it puzzled me quite a fair bit. Although I must say I did buy into the hype, but as I read a little bit more in terms of John Hattie's work, invisible learning, you then realize that there's enough evidence that if you are adopting uh, direct teaching methods, it actually can be a highly effective method. So maybe right now what we can do is uh, for you to share a little bit. If we talk about uh, direct teaching as a high effective method, how then can the teacher or the instructional or the educational designer, as mentioned by Kilben and Millman, put their own spin on it so that it allows them, you know, some degree of control rather than, you know, I'm just there to execute certain methods and then that's it i'm done
1: okay well then let's take direct instruction as not the teacher talking for a long period of time that that's the kind see this is the problem soon as someone hears that it conjures up the image of the teacher at the front talking for long periods of time as we did yeah but the teacher is still the person who is Largely orchestrating the learning event and experience, because if the if the teacher is not uh, doesn't have something over and above the students to organize it, then why are we paying teachers to do this? Why don't we just let the students do it on their own? Right? Okay. So, the the notion of direct instruction is not that the teacher is talking in large amounts, but is is the de- as designed a set of experiences that could involve any other methods for example if i'm doing a workshop and we've done many workshops over two or three days right and we are leading the workshop so we're doing direct instruction we don't just go in there and say to everybody right there's some material on the table look at that and we come back in two days time and you tell us what you've learned we start off by mapping out what we're going to do we it's like doing a roadmap going somewhere i mean i've sometimes had a map and I'm looking at it, and it's not helping me because it's not clear enough. There's not enough structure. Whereas a really good map will get you from A to B um, effectively and efficiently. So again, to be able to say, right, given this group, given that the given the topic that I've got now, how am I going to get this concept across? Now this is where the creativity of the teacher goes in. Sometimes. Uh-huh they may have a story that really captures something. So that would be a very individual thing. And that's why stories in themselves are such an important aspect of creative TG. And that John Paul Sartre said that we learn everything in life through stories. Um, So the, the, the ability as a teacher to bring in a story, it could be a personal story, or it could be a story by somebody else, but that's a powerful way of bringing things in. Teachers, the way they use their voice, the tone of voice, the ability to smile well, the ability to use a bit of situated humour, let's be honest about it, look how much comedians earn, I mean, there's a comedian, uh, not popular in some circles because he's um, not politically correct, but Ricky Gervais, Um has made millions and millions of pounds out of using humor. So, you know, teachers can use humor again. Um, The ability, um, you you can, you know, when we create activities for learning, sometimes you do an activity. We've been on loads of workshops and, you and know, you get given an activity and okay, it makes a point about team building or something, but it can be boring. The ability to make those activities that are really engaging, inspiring. Um, very good examples. It, it's a metaphor that I use stories, humor, activity, presentation style examples. That's the, the the real, if you like, eye level um, creative teaching. It's, you could call it the heart of teaching. Not art as with a H, but art as in art, as in music and drama. Drama, But even the art of teaching has a scientific base. Humour refreshes the brain. We know that. Humour helps creativity. Um, stories are powerful emotional anchors in the brain. And this is all now science. We know that um, the way you speak, the smile are powerful reports building mechanisms so these are uh, that repertoire of approaches techniques is it, bringing together lots of knowledge about how we organize information how we actually communicate with people and how we are able to give feedback situationally that's focused there's a real s- skill set around using all these resources. What you, you're, you're the expert, in my opinion, on eTools to suddenly think, oh, if I use Kahoot here, that's going to do that. If I use this tool here, it's going to help you to visualise that better. If I use that, it's going to add a novel way of bringing information together. There's so many resources and activities. It's a bit like being a doctor. There's so many techniques, there's so many tools, there's so many drugs. It's pulling together. That package of medicine yeah. treatment for that patient, and medicine's moving more and more to that. And with learning analytics, um, we're able now to make teaching not just more differentiated. We can do that with hyperlinking, etc. But even more personalised. And teachers today have got to learn these technologies. They've got to be very skillful with the method use, and they've got to understand human personalities a bit. Uh, move away from learning styles to um making the learning more focused on the level of conceptual understanding that somebody's already got so that's that's now going to be the way teaching's going we're going to have to be at a design learning understanding the brain pulling together a wider range of resources and making that learning experience much more potent richer um Effective, efficient, and engaging for increasing groups of learners—that's going to be the for or the expert teacher, and that's happening now. People going into classrooms and just dishing out some stuff. Oh, <laughs> read, read chapter four. I mean, um, and uh, you know, do the exercises and you know, fill in the workshop, but worksheet and whatever. Um, it's Jurassic Park, right? Okay, I I think that that's
0: important because. Um, I think this will reassure teachers who might be wondering, okay, so if I just adopt these methods, you know, teaching becomes uh, dull and grey. You know, I'm not allowed to uh, put my own flourish on things. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that because now uh, I think this is where we will honestly uh, separate the ordinary teachers to that from the exceptional teachers because exceptional teachers understand that these are just heuristics, but it also requires finesse and skill uh, in actually deploying some of these methods in the classroom.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Me and you play football, and we weren't bad. I mean, I remember, I don't think the team that we played, they never lost a game. But the point is, um, we don't get $800,000 um, or pounds a month, do we? We did it for the love of the game. So we're playing the game, and we're not bad at it. But um, what I'm saying is, it's like with teaching now. It's, it's going to be, you're going to have to be... Uh, <laughs> We weren't good enough to play professionally. Um, and, Speak for uh, yourselves. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, what I'm saying is, so, yeah, it's a bit like that. And, you know, the bottom line is that what is going to be demanding of teachers now, just like with doctors. I mean, doctors, you know, 200 years ago, as long as they had a sore and some leeches and a bottle of whiskey, they could probably go around and, um, you know, kind of, you know, call themselves doctors Um can't do that today, and we know doctors, and every now and again, you know, every couple of months, they've got to read new research, and it's really hard to keep up to date. Uh, and that's why we have specialists, don't we? That oh, you know, a doctor, well, I know the liver very well, the rest of the stuff I've got a bit of an idea on. So, teachers have got to be able to, um, yeah, it's the skill set, um, is getting more um, complicated, um, it's more involved the the knowledge bases that teachers have got to pull in, not just from their own subject knowledge, but about the mind and the brain, it, it's, it's going to be a very challenging uh, job. And maybe that's when we can really talk about teaching as a profession, in the way we talk about it, um, you know, about medicine and engineering.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And about just showing some PowerPoint slides and being able <laughs> to, uh, you know, read these things out and that. It's, it's, it's going to be a lot more than that.
0: Okay, so let's let's now just link this back to what we originally started with. Uh, and that's really about, there's a much talk about neuroscience and its impact on teaching. So what does this uh, uh, what, what does this mean and how does this fit in with evidence-based teaching? So maybe if you can just uh, bring everybody back and wrap this around.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is, I can understand, it's like anything else, because we work in the area and we get paid, to keep up to date with educational knowledge and increasingly knowledge from the the life sciences, and that's biology, it's psychology, it's it's I suppose even zoology. I guess uh, you know it's bringing this stuff in. We we have time to do that for a lot of teachers. Well, they you know that they're, they're caught up in increasingly demanding workloads, both in terms of managing students and admin. There's a couple of key areas, isn't there? The term neuroscience and there's a term called um, cognitive science. Now, well, what, what do these things mean? Well, it's really interesting area. This is that neuroscientists are primarily looking at the brain as an organ. And there's a lot of stuff in the brain, like 86 billion um, neurons and they connect to thousands of other neurons. And there's lots of chemicals flying around in that brain, right? Neurotransmitters, we, we could go on and on about that. There's a lot of stuff in that brain. And what we're trying to say is, well, how does that stuff in that brain impact the learning process? I mean, we, we know things like dopamine and serotonin affect our mood and dispositions and things. So what, is, what do we know about the brain that we can extract out and say, well, when I teach, If I teach in this way, it's going to impact the brain in certain ways to help the learning process and to promote well-being. Right. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the organ. Equally, there's something called the mind. And the mind is what we engage in when we're teaching students. We're directly focusing on their mind. So we're trying to get them to pay attention right, by making the learning meaningful, interesting, we're then recognizing that in the mind at the level of memory. So memory exists as a biological entity in the brain, but it also exists as a psychological entity in the mind. So we know uh, not to give too much information at once. We need to know that students need to do retrieval practice to get it from the mind neurologically wired as a neural network in the brain. We also know that um, for skills, there needs to be deliberate practice. So what we're working with is mind and the brain. But this is the interesting thing from research. And there's a a nice quote that catches. um, What I always thought to be the case is that, hold on a minute, We've got to get it in the brain, yeah, but we've got to process it in the mind and the mind will work with the brain. So we can't put it straight in the brain, so to speak, so easily. So here's the quote that this is um, Doherty and Roby, 2018. Now, they look at all the literature on neuroscience, cognitive psychology to do with how the mind works. And what they say, and this is the big, big point, is the gap between neuroscience, the brain, and Mm -hmm. education cannot be bridged without the intermediary stepping stone of cognitive (laughs) theory. That is how the mind works. But to the point, neuroscience is not even actually needed. What they're saying is it's not that it's, it's irrelevant, But for teachers, teachers don't need to understand all the neurons and various kind of biological aspects of the brain. Yep. What is needed is... is whether training leads to changes in core cognitive processes. So from an educational point of view, when we're instructional designers using the mindset that we have of learning. We're using the strategies, the tools, the technology, designing stuff. The big point is, do we get stuff um, effectively from working memory into long-term memory effectively? In other words, it's about developing working memory to work well, to get the stuff in and to develop um, IQ in some way. In other words, that the students seem to be better at learning and better at performance. Um, So that seems to be the important thing. So it's about cognition um at the level of mind in other words we're working with the mind and if we can get students engaged and we can connect new new knowledge to their prior knowledge we can chunk it up so they can process it they can get it from working memory to long-term memory we can get them thinking because the brain's lazy we know that so yeah yeah these this is knowledge we must have because if we get them thinking and we design the environment, like they will process that information. And then it goes into the brain. It's a nice organized structure. And if we work it long enough, something called understanding happens. Now, understanding is a ubiquitous term like consciousness, that we're aware that we're conscious, we build understanding, but we can't really locate that in the brain. So this is one of the real anomalies. We know the mind and the brain work together. But there's a lot of things that we don't know about that relationship. Uh, And that's really um, the important point. So, another quote again, love this one. It's Brown. And basically, his point is I think it's a (laughs) chap. I apologize if not, but I'm 99% sure. but while neuroscience, that's the study of the brain and how it works and all the complexity, is enhancing our understanding of the brain mechanisms, right? all the biological stuff that yes. underlies learning, it is still a long way from being able to tell us in specific empirical terms about how to improve education. Now, that's a big point. So we we are much better off with... Focusing on the way the mind works at, in terms of cognition, and that's why we talk about cognitive design principles that we've talked about before. So, those cognitive scientific principles are a big part of this old notion of instructional design. But you've got to know the principles, but. You've also got to be able to understand how to use all these methods, learning strategies, technology tools. And given that repertoire, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this uh, approaches, repertoire of skills, mindset, tools, it's pulling all this stuff together. And being able to say, right, I'm now going to design this lesson. Now, it's a bit like a civil engineer, isn't it? Like a civil engineer has to build a bridge. And there's a lot of problems to consider. Well, what materials do I use? Uh, Engineering, what mathematics do I need to work out so that whatever goes on that bridge, it doesn't collapse the bridge? And then I've got to think, well, how will the environment, the weather affect the materials? So they're pulling in, oh, you know, they're pulling in mathematical models physics, uh, understandings of the environment, understanding of materials. So, but all that knowledge don't necessarily make a uniform bridge. It makes a bridge that's obviously fit for purpose. Whether you want that bridge to be blue or black or whether you want it to have ornaments on it or whether you want it to look like something, uh, providing it meets the, the, the specifications, that's where that the individual designers make money so all architects or engineers must build stuff to certain physical laws and materials how it looks the aesthetics of it is is the personal spin in it
0: okay, it's the same okay
1: teaching, i think right so as a, bad to- teacher, a bad teacher who violates all these principles no matter what else they do it ain't going to work
0: Okay, so to wrap up that segment then, what is one piece of advice uh, that you would give just to wrap up this segment for teachers on how they can actually get started uh, on, uh, on, yeah, on what we've been talking about? So there's no need to talk about neuroscience. So what's one thing that they can do to begin to uh, educate themselves a little bit more in this area?
1: Okay, well, the one thing is don't worry too much about how the brain works. Exactly. Um, Read up. And look, this is is the thing that really worries me, is that that we expect people in in, in medicine to be reading articles and research papers and recent treatment. Teachers have got to get used to the fact that they do need to read some stuff on cognitive science and what teaching methods. They need to read some stuff on... um, on good educational research, now we could, we could argue what that is, but they do need to be more engaged in kind of looking at the field now of cognitive science and saying, look, there's a lot of stuff here that is relevant to the way I teach. And not just saying, well, I did my teacher training 20 years ago. I don't need that stuff. Um, you know, the, the notion that, I mean, a lot of teachers I've noticed in different countries, individually, And why are we doing professional development? Well, in, if doctors weren't doing professional development, they'd be sawing your leg off now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, they'd be putting leeches on you, you know, and you'd be made, in, made to drink whiskey that, you know, is not very good quality. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, a bit, a bit humorous here, but, you know, there is this teachers and and I do understand teachers, the workload for teachers. And we're talking, you know, many countries, I can't generalize, but certainly a number of countries, the amount of work they have to do apart from teach students and do administrative work and other kind of stuff that um, somehow there's got to be a kind of change of, professionalism in teaching and the best schools in different countries in the world. I've seen it in different countries and certainly in Singapore, I think, you know, it's something they really try to address is let's get teachers' workload more focused on being able to plan their lessons, to do reflective practice, to do action research. Action research is about reading stuff that's relevant, talking to other teachers, trying it out, sharing things. We talk about communities of practice and sharing. Teachers have got to be able and be given the time and see that as something central to the development of professionalism. Okay, perfect. So it's not just about teachers changing, it's about educational institutions and systems changing as well. Um, and uh, cognitive science tells us that the, that's how it should happen. And this is what we need to do. You can't keep having more and more adrenaline, and more and more of this and more and more uh, of, of different things. You can't, you how know, big, you know, big is the glass, you know, to, to keep pouring things into it. Right. OK, perfect. So, uh, yeah. OK, so that wraps up
0: the segment for this Part A, uh, and as usual, in Part 2, Part B, we normally share something that we may have read, something that we came across, or it could be a little tool that we have tried out.
1: So, you want to go first then? No, not really, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> like... Uh... You're the man. You're, you're. This is where. This is where you truly excel over me by about ten thousand times. So I, I, I am. You know, co- continually thinking, writing, reading. Um, I did write an article for the local paper on what was it on? Yeah, educational myths. Because we did one. I've done, I've been productive. Uh, this week we did a um a pod last week didn't we an educational myth, and i did yep. that an article for our local paper and i think that went in a couple of days ago so yeah i'm 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 engaged in that um the tools mate you're the expert so it's okay so, now. yeah so
0: i came across this another free tool which i thought was quite interesting because um you know every time we want to teach somebody something we have to create step by step guides Uh, And some of it might be a little bit complex because you need to click a few buttons to get to the actual thing you want people to learn. So, I actually found this uh, and it's a free tool uh, and it's a Chrome extension. Of course, I will put the link uh, in the show notes so that you can actually download it for free. Uh, But it's called Scribe uh, and what it does is um, it actually auto-generates step-by-step guides just by clicking record and the software is smart enough to detect what you are clicking, what you are doing, and it actually creates a list, automatically creates an online learning guide for you so that you can then share it with someone else. So imagine if you wanted to create a guide on, let's say, how to use this particular, uh, let's say, soft chalk because I think you're familiar with soft chalk. Yeah. And you don't have time to go through with someone. You can actually just download this for free and all you have to do is click record uh, and go through the process that you want to share. So, for example, how to open a file, how to do you then choose the font and how do you write and how do you create your first uh, online document. All you need to do is click record, go through the process you want to share. And what happens is scribe the software, monitors your clicks and keystrokes to instantly create your guide. Answer questions, build SOP and it allows you to also then train uh, the different people that you want to look through your material very fast. So some of the key features includes uh, automatically generated step by step guides, customizable text steps and images, one click sharing. Uh, yeah, it's just absolutely brilliant. I I, I have to be uh, to be fair, I've not exactly tried it out, but I'm looking at some of the awards that he has won. Uh, it is considered one of the top twenty apps for productivity. So if you wanted to create guides and you know you didn't want to go through the whole process of doing screenshots and then pasting it on a Word document, you might want to give Scribe a share. What do you think of that
1: one? Well, mate, it's exactly, if we look at what um, Kilbane and Molman was saying, a broad repertoire of instructional models. We've gone into that, teaching strategies and technologies now you can see every week you're finding and that you're, you're skillful at this you're very skillful on this so this is what teachers need to be don't they? they need to be able to look at these technologies and that's something i think we need to do more on to yeah. be able to say right okay we're identifying cognitive scientific principles we're looking at effective methods we're talking about mindsets and these technologies um are as you just described there, each week you come up with a technology that seems to make an aspect of the learning process more efficient. Will you imagine that a teacher is able to look, be able to have a good sample of these that are very relevant to their subject and their students? They've got strong pedagogic literacy. They understand the cognitive science aspect, the communication aspects, the mindset aspects. And this becomes their professional bank of knowledge they're going to be better teachers aren't they
0: yeah definitely yeah so i thought that was something interesting because you still you see exactly what you said even though the tool is there you have got to think about how you want to capture it you got to think about how you want to lay the learning out the tool is just there to assist you it is not so intelligent to do the work for you or do the thinking for you
1: yeah, Mark, both of us have had eye surgery, haven't we? Um, to correct short sighting, this correct? Yep. yep, Okay, the tools are quite simple. There's a la- You had the laser eye, something called red- radial keratotomy, and that's just basically a surgeon's knife. Now, those tools are there, but you wouldn't have wanted me operating on you, and I wouldn't have wanted you operating on me, right?
0: Yep, yep.
1: So that, that's where the, the, the tools are there. That can do a great job but you've got to have the skillful use of those tools and uh, and that's it really isn't it yeah it's 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 not that complex but it's a bit like football it's a simple game but to do it well it's hard and it's the same with teaching that we we know a lot now about what is effective teaching and learning and it but to pull it all together and to do it skillfully day in day out with different groups of students it's one of the hardest jobs in the world Yep, a challenging, certainly one of the challenging jobs. And you're never, ever going to do it perfectly because it's no footballer scores 30 goals in a game uh, in the Premier League, right? Not even Cristiano Ronaldo. So it's, it's you know, that's what makes the profession of teaching. And I think kind of, um, apart from it being a noble profession, you're helping people to have better lives, learning and well being, but equally to, um, uh, you're always learning. The potential for learning and development is, it's exponential.
0: Yeah, perfect. So that brings us very nicely to the end of today's episode. So uh, once again, if you have enjoyed listening to this, please do like and share the podcast to uh, people who you think may uh, find us interesting or who may find uh, the information that we talked about useful for them as they continue to improve their Practice. So once again, you can also write to us uh, at evidence based creative teaching at gmail.com. Once again, you can write to us at evidence based creative teaching uh, at gmail.com. So that's it, that's a wrap. Episode 40 done and dusted. I feel I like we have accomplished something this week. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's amazing given that you're in Singapore, I'm here, and we, we're busy and we come together for this hour. Yep. And we take a topic and we try to go into it in some meaningful depth, make it practical and, um, and have a little bit of banter. So it's it's therapeutic and it's practically useful. And that's what, you know, it goes back to a John Dewey uh, quote that I use a lot. To be playful and serious at the same time is possible. It defines the ideal mental condition. So we, we try to make this useful, practical and a little bit of fun so you can listen to it yeah, in, in a kind of languid way, learn something and and uh, not be um, pathologically bored by a monologue.
0: Right. We, okay.
1: Only, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So
0: thank you, Dan. So take care, everyone. And we'll speak to you in our 41st episode. So take care and goodbye. And goodbye from me.